Well, this is a passage of apocalyptic proportions. And I wonder what comes into your mind even as you hear that word, apocalyptic. My sense is that that what we think about when we hear that word may be more informed by Hollywood than the scriptures. In fact, even just last night, I was watching just the first few moments of the latest M. Night Shyamalan movie, something like Knock on the Cabin Door, and even one of those characters. Just last night, I had no idea this was going to come up. Just last night, he said, apocalypse, and used that word to mean the end of the world. I think that's typically what we think about when we hear that word, and some of you might even be thinking about the zombie apocalypse. I remember the first time I ever preached on this passage in my church, when I talked about the zombie apocalypse, there was a young man, maybe eight or so, and he shouted back at me, that's not real! <laughs> so I had to just acknowledge that. That's right, young man, that's not real. But of course, what is intended to be communicated to us in this apocalyptic passage is absolutely intended to be real. So at the outset here, I just want to say that we would all be well served to know, well served to remember that the word apocalypse, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't have anything to do with zombies. It simply means revealing or unveiling. Apocalypse is like pulling back the curtain of this world. It's like pulling back the fabric of the reality of what we can see so that we can see the real heavenly or real spiritual realities that exist behind them. Sometimes those realities are future ones. Sometimes those realities are present ones. Sometimes what we read, those realities are past ones. And in our Bibles, we have a collection of texts that fall under this category of apocalyptic literature. You might be thinking about the last book of the Bible, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which just means the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where it gets its title from. But we also come across this kind of literature in Zechariah and places in Ezekiel and here in the book of Daniel. Look, if you know anything about these books, you know that they can be very challenging to understand. They can be very challenging because they communicate to us using all sorts of highly symbolic imagery. In fact, it's been said that when we come to apocalyptic, it's like storytelling gives way to movie watching. I think that's true. Only for a lot of us, it can be like watching a movie in another language with no subtitles. The images can be hard to understand. But here's the thing. Apocalyptic is not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to be confusing as much as it's meant to actually be encouraging. And the images might seem like they're from another world, but they very much speak to the realities of this life, the realities of the world that you and I find ourselves living in. In fact, apocalyptic in general, and Daniel chapter 7 in particular answers some of the deepest questions that you and I ask as we make our way through this world. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who, who looks out there, who looks out into the world around us today and wonders what on earth is going on. 
God, where are you in all of this? Is any of this ever going to get, get any better than it is now? And, and where am I going to shake out in all this? Well, listen, friends, here in Daniel chapter 7, what God is doing is pulling back the curtain to give us some kind of answers to questions like that. I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you the answer right up front that Daniel chapter 7 gives us as we look at the world and ask all those kinds of questions. Here's Daniel chapter 7's answer. The nations rage, Jesus rules, and his people will reign with him. Friends, if you get nothing else this morning, please take that away with you. The nations rage. They've been raging. They are raging. They will continue to do so. But even so, Jesus rules. He rules personally. He rules presently. And for every one of us who remains faithful to him, one day you and I will, will reign with him now, let me show you where I'm getting all that. First, the nation's rage. And we see that right there in this opening vision of those, those four beasts there in verses 1 to 8. This Daniel receives a vision. Now, remember, Daniel's not just any old guy, and this vision is not just any old vision. Daniel was a young man in Jerusalem way back in the day when Jerusalem was besieged by Babylon. It was just wiped out, and all the sort of royal family and the young people and the, the intelligent people and the, the culturally trained people, they were all taken off, led off into captivity in Babylon, and Daniel was one of those young men. He was trained to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's court at the absolute height of Babylonian power. And he did so all while remaining faithful to the Lord. But here, at this point in time in Daniel's life, he's become an old man. Nebuchadnezzar is far off the scene, and winds of change were beginning to blow across the world stage which is exactly what we see in his dream. These winds are coming from every direction, winds blowing over the, the great sea. Now, you've got to remember the sea, that's, that's symbolic in this vision of, of the domain of chaos and disorder. The sea was considered like that place of God's creation that had not yet been subdued. It was a place of chaos and anarchy and disorder and even evil. And so up from the sea is the the waters of the great sea are rippling these four frightening beasts, one after the other emerge. Now listen, friends, please use your imagination. That's like part of the whole point of this and this kind of literature and these kinds of images. Use your imagination as you picture these beasts. I mean, the first one is a lion with wings. Just think about that for a moment. I mean, a lion is frightening enough. Imagine a lion that can fly. 
right? You go to the zoo, you look at the lion through the little wall, it's got the plexiglass and that kind of stuff, but the top is open, right? As long as there's a wall, you're fine. But a lion that can fly, it's like there's nowhere you can escape, it's going to get you. And just as soon as you're like dealing with trying to figure out how to imagine this, this lion with wings, this other beast comes in right after it's this, this misshapen bear, one side's bigger than the other, and he's got, a, he's got a rack of ribs like in his jaw, and he's just told to devour everything. I mean, lions are frightening. They're the king of the jungle, but bears, bears eat everything. Like lions eat meat. That's the only thing they can eat. Bears devour everything. Once again, as soon as we're just trying to wrap our minds around this picture, yet another one comes out. It's a leopard, not just any leopard. It's this four-headed flying leopard. I mean, leopards were like already considered like the fastest creature. They had speed. That's what they had over these other two beasts. But this one's got four heads and wings. It's so fast, it can kind of bite in every direction. Who can possibly escape its jaws? And then everything gets quiet in this vision. And Daniel draws our attention to this next one. The sea stirs again, excuse me. And what emerges is so different from the rest. I mean, this beast can't be described like any normal animal. It has iron teeth. It has this unnatural ability to devour and destroy. It has 10 horns. I mean, can you think of any natural creature that has 10 horns? That's like five times the normal amount of horns on a creature. I mean, there is nothing like this. This is a terrifying creature. And in a way that can only really be imaginable in a dream or a vision, all of a sudden, if 10 horns wasn't enough, another little horn kind of like grows out on this beast's head. And as it grows out, it knocks down three three other horns. And as the camera kind of zooms in on the horn, it's got eyes and a mouth in the horn starts talking. It's, it's got this bragging little boastful mouth speaking boastful things on this terrifying great beast. Friends, welcome to apocalyptic literature. <laughs> Listen, later in this very same chapter, I mean, Daniel himself was going to be confused. And in his vision, he's going to like reach out and touch somebody and be like, Psst, hey, can you explain what these things are? And one of the angelic beings in this vision is going to let us know that these four beasts are basically four kings or four kingdoms of this world. And this is where we all tend to get sidetracked. I mean, as soon as I say that, and as soon as we hear that angel's explanation, we go, okay, all right, great. These are all somehow symbolically representing four different kingdoms. What are the kingdoms? We all immediately want to know, like, like, what are they? One of the ones, the options that I came across was that the lion and the eagle was, was America teamed up with Great Britain, and, and the bear is Russia, and then the leopard is Germany because German tanks are called leopards, and you can, you can see where this thing quickly gets out of hand. Now, there is a traditional view. I'll let you know what that is. It happens to be my view. 
The traditional view sees these four kingdoms. The first one, the lion, is, is Babylon. The next one is the, the, the bear, is the Medes and the Persians. That's why one side is kind of bigger than the other. The, the four-headed leopard represents Alexander the Great, who conquered faster than anybody else, farther and wider, and then his kingdom was divided up between four, and then the last one is often assumed to be Rome or some other future kingdom. And again, that does happen to be my view, however... The text doesn't tell us, which means the most important thing is not figuring out what little kingdoms and what people, what exact historical figures do all these little beasts and claws and horns point to. The larger question, the bigger question, I think the most important question is, why are the kingdoms of the world being depicted like this? Here's what we're supposed to get from these beasts. Friends, when the kingdoms and the rulers and the nations of this world, when they exercise their, their God-given power and authority and rule apart from him without any regard for him, they become beastly monstrosities. The nations rage. Listen, friends, the, the problem is not simply that they have power. The problem is not power itself. In fact, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of this book, from the very beginning of creation, it was always God's plan. It was always God's desire that he would give his power, his rule and his reign to humans. I mean, he set up Adam and Eve to have dominion, and he wanted them to multiply, to spread that rule and reign to the ends of the earth. That was his original goal for creation, that human beings would possess this God-given ability to rule. That's not the problem. The problem is, ever since the third chapter of the Bible, we've been pressing that rule apart from God, without any regard to him, not exercising our authority with goodness and righteousness and justice. And so what's happening here in this vision is the, the veil is being pulled back so that we can see the kingdoms of this world for what they really are. It's like that moment in the Fellowship of the Ring. Like I always use Lord of the Rings illustrations at my church and it's getting a little old so I gotta use one here. <laughs> it's like that moment in the Fellowship of the Ring when the hobbits are being chased by the dark riders, by the ring wraiths. They're seeking the, the ring of power and Aragorn asks Frodo, he says, he says, are you frightened? Frodo says, yes. Aragorn says, not nearly frightened enough because I know what hunts you. Friends, that is what this vision is designed to do, to get us to see the kingdoms of this world as they really are, and not to get us to be afraid of them that they might devour us. No, that's not, that's not it. Don't make that mistake. He's not saying you should be afraid and then therefore you should run and hide and not engage in the world or do anything like that. No, no, he's not saying that. In fact, the only way to actually get devoured by these beasts 
is to give in to them, to compromise, to compromise on your faith in Christ by joining them and loving the rule and reign that they offer. Friends, that is the only way to be devoured by these bees. It's to let them get you. That might sound strange to us. I think a lot of times when we hear about these kingdoms and when we think about what it would have been like to, to live back then, if you and I imagine ourselves living in Babylon or living in Persia or living in Greece or living in Rome, all of these different kingdoms that represent all of these sort of anti-God kingdoms, we always assume that if we lived in those kingdoms, we would totally recognize how against God they were and we would not be tempted to compromise by sort of throwing our lot in with them. But folks, don't make that mistake. I mean, if you or I lived in any one of these kingdoms at the absolute height of their power, and we could witness maybe like a parade, a parade where one of the kings or the generals or an emperor would kind of march through the capital city with his, with his armies marching behind him, showing off all their riches and luxury and power and prestige, you wouldn't immediately be tempted to think of a beast. You would immediately be tempted to worship, which is why we need to have the curtain pulled back. Like, it doesn't matter how much power, how much money, how much influence, how much innovation, or even, even how much freedom a nation can offer you. If it offers any of those things without any regard for God and his rule, it is nothing less than beastly. And if you embrace it, it will turn you into something less than human. Friends, the nations rage, and they're going to keep raging. But this is here for our good. We don't need to be surprised. We don't need to be shocked when we see that unfold around us on the world stage. No, the, ra- the nations rage, but even though they do, Jesus still rules. Friends, Jesus rules. That is the great encouragement of apocalyptic, that the curtain is pulled back and we find that Christ is actually ruling. That's when I say, like, Jesus rules. I don't mean like, yeah, he rules, like he's awesome. That's true. But I mean, he rules and reigns. He's seated on a throne. He's the one who has He actually has all the power and the authority and the kingdom and this everlasting dominion. We see that right here in this vision of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days. It's there in verses 9 to 14. It's like suddenly someone changes the channel. We go from all these beasts to suddenly there's all these thrones. And the Ancient of Days himself takes his seat. I mean, this is the only place we see that language of ancient, and day, ancient of days in the entire Bible. Look, it doesn't just mean old guy. Well, I think this is probably why a lot of us grow up picturing God as just some kind of some old man. This isn't just saying some old man, but this is 
actually a picture, a rare, one of only a few actual depictions of God himself. And unlike those kingdoms that came up out of the sea that just, just kind of come and go, I mean, this one is one who always was and always will be. And he's decked out in white, in clothing of pure white and, and hair that's pure white. It just signifies this, this perfect and pure power. And fire just streams out from before his throne. In the scriptures, fire is often used to symbolize the the presence of judgment or the presence of God or both. And here it just streams out from the throne of the Ancient of Days. And as it streams out, it just illuminates this vast multitude of worshipers. First it's a million, then it's A hundred million all before the throne serving. And just like that, you and I forget completely about all those beasts. Because they don't compare. They don't compare to this one's rule at all. We forget about them completely until all of a sudden, in verse 11, that bragging creepy little horn's voice comes back on the stage. We don't know exactly what he's saying, but he's, he's boasting again. And just like that, he's toast. I mean, there's no battle. There's no description of anything. Just like that, in an instance, that little bragging beast is destroyed. And then everything gets quiet again. I mean, just like in the vision of the four beasts, just before that fourth final beast emerges, everything gets quiet. Only this time, as everything gets quiet, there's no beast that emerges, but a man. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of Man, listen, this needs to kind of just sink in a bit here. I mean, think about that succession of just these, these beasts, one after the other, emerging from the chaos of the sea, the sea, but this one, no, this one is riding on the clouds of heaven. This is, this is clearly and obviously a divine figure. In the Old Testament, it is God and God alone who gets to ride the clouds. But here, this divine being is like a son of man. And friends, that, that phrase... That phrase is simply a way of saying a man. A son of man is basically saying that it is a male human figure. In contrast to these earthly, beastly kingdoms, here we have a heavenly man. And listen, notice the direction that he's going. The son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven, but he is not coming from heaven down to earth. He's actually going in the opposite direction. The son of man is riding the clouds up to heaven, going towards the ancient of days in order to be presented before him. And obviously he passes inspection because look at what the ancient of days gives to this one, like a son of man. He gives him dominion and glory, a kingdom, in other words, a rule and a reign that all peoples, all nations, all languages shall serve him an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, a kingdom that 
shall never be destroyed. Listen, friends, it's no accident that this was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. The title that he used for himself more than any other title was the Son of Man. And I think a lot of times when he said the Son of Man, people probably thought he was just saying, I'm a man. Like this kind of generic reference to himself as a human being. In fact, sometimes one of the things that you and I might hear is, oh, when, when Jesus said son of God, he was thinking of his divinity. When he said son of man, he was thinking of his humanity. But in actual fact, it's flipped. Actually, son of God is a very human term. I mean, Adam is considered a son of God. David, as the Messiah, was considered a son of God. You and I, in a sense, can be considered children of God, but son of man. Son of man was this unique title for this divine, heavenly being, and Jesus came saying all the time that he himself was the son of man. And I don't think anyone caught it until... Till he was standing before the high priest, after he had been arrested, they're questioning him about his identity, and they say in, in the scriptures that you can find the story in, in Mark as well as Matthew, the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when he says that, they tear their clothes and say, blasphemy, what need of any more evidence? We have no more need of any more evidence whatsoever. We were asking him if he'd admit to being the Messiah. He just claimed to be the Son of Man. That's even higher, even a higher category. And of course... He's condemned to die as a criminal. And when you and I hear this language of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven here in Daniel 7, what you and I most often immediately think of are, are echoes of the second coming. We think, okay, this is the, the return of Christ. This Christ will one day come back to earth in the future, which is something that is true, something that we affirm, something that we cannot wait Four, but that's not what's being depicted here in Daniel chapter 7. What's being depicted here in Daniel chapter 7 is this one like a son of man coming up to the ancient of days on the clouds to receive a kingdom. What Daniel saw as future for him we look back on as past for us. Friends, this happened when Christ came in his first coming as the ultimate perfect human being standing in contrast to all the, the beastly kingdoms of this world. He came to demonstrate what it really looks like to live a real, true human life in perfect submission to God in every single 
possible way. He lived in perfect submission to God in every point, in every place, including submission that would lead him to a cross where he would lay down his own life so that anyone who would ever put their faith and trust in him could be forgiven of their sins and promised and granted eternal life with him, even as Jesus said. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want a rule and a reign? Do you want a power, an authority, a king, and a kingdom that is completely different than all the kingdoms of this world? Find it in the Son of Man. Find it in Jesus Christ. And you know you can trust him. You know you can trust him because he, he had all this power and authority, and look at how he chose to use it by submitting his life, by laying it down to serve you, to serve sinners like me. Because he did, you and I can find our place in this story as well. The nation's rage Jesus rules, and his people will reign with him. We see that there in verses 15 to 28. In many ways here, we get kind of a, a, a summary, a restatement, and even a bit of an explanation of all that came before it. But we also get introduced to this new phrase, the saints of the most high. Listen, friends, don't get caught off guard by that language of saints. Right? This isn't like this isn't referring to some kind of special category of God's people. Like, you know, you've got the church and members of the church, but you know, those folks up here in the front row, I mean, these are the saints, you know, or or you know, you've got the church, but but all those wonderful people that Carl prayed for earlier in our service, the ones who are serving, I mean, those are the saints. Those are like the cream of the crop, friends. Don't mistake that word to mean that. The word saints is simply a word that refers to all those who have given their life to this one, this son of man, and his rule, and we have been transferred out of the kingdoms of this world, and we have been brought into the kingdom of his son and under his rule rule and reign. So any one of us who, have, who has given our lives to him, we are considered saints. There's a question that we need to ask here. Is that a good thing to be? And I don't just mean in, in the life to come, in the ages to come. I don't just mean after Christ's second coming when he returns to set everything right. I mean right now in this world to be counted as a saint, to be counted as one of God's people. I mean, is that a good thing for us to be? And you're probably thinking like, well, I'm supposed to say yes. I'm pretty sure they taught us at the membership class that we're supposed to say yes to that. 
And we know we're supposed to say yes to that, but we also know that the reality is, is that oftentimes it doesn't feel like it, does it? Oftentimes it doesn't feel like it, which is what is so unnerving to Daniel about this vision. He can't let that fourth beast go. He like, he asked, what is this all about? It's about kingdoms and kings and nations, but the saints are going to receive the kingdom forever. That's like the main idea right there, verses 17 and 18. Hey, Daniel, the saints are going to rule forever, but he can't let it alone. He's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's good. That's great. But tell me more about that fourth beast. And there's part of us that wants to say, Daniel, I wish you had just let it alone, but we actually need to hear this. Because what we discover is that that fourth beast with all those weird horns and that creepy one, that boastful one, what he is going to do is actually make war on the saints. And what this says is that he is going to actually prevail. Yes, it is good to be counted amongst God's saints. But sometimes in this life, it does not feel like it, especially when we feel those beasts around us, the nations around us raging, seeking to discourage us, seeking to weaken our resolve, seeking to get us to compromise and to throw our lots in with them to find our citizenship here in this world. And the whole point of this, remember, is to pull back the curtain and say, don't do that. And as long as we don't, it might mean that we will suffer in this world. In fact, it might even look like we're losing. Maybe you ask why. Why would God allow that? This answer, this text doesn't give us the answer to that question, but we can look to the person of Christ and say, well, he experienced the very same thing. And though he was killed, God raised him from the dead where he presently rules and reigns over every square inch of the cosmos, and he has not ceased since. And one day he will come again. And when he does, all the beasts of this world will finally be put down, and we will reign forever with him. So, don't fear. Don't fear the beasts. What we should be most afraid of isn't being devoured by the world, but joining it and becoming something less human along the way. And friends, that lack of fear should also be fueled by hope. Hope, because even right now, in heaven, there is a man on our side. And one day he will come back. And knowing that should put steel in the spine of our faith, knowing that if we stick with him, no matter what we face in this world, we will reign with him. So let's press on. Let's keep pressing forward. Let's keep talking about Christ. Let's continue being willing to risk being made to feel awkward, or let's be 
willing to risk being ostracized or one day even persecuted by still proclaiming Christ. Let's continue to gather and worship, lifting up the name of the one who rules from heaven. Let's keep planting churches to spread the rule of that name far and wide. That's the sum of the matter and the end of the matter. The nations rage, Jesus rules, and his people will reign with him. Let's do like Daniel and keep that in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, what an epic passage. What an epic picture of the grand drama unfolding in the world before us. Lord, help us to fix our eyes, not on the beastly kingdoms of this world, but on the divinely human rule and reign of your son. No matter what comes our way, help us to be faithful to him down to the end when we will reign forever. We ask in his name, amen.